Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A safe space for self-exploration, questioning the status quo, and finding out who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck podcast with our guest Lori Brennan. Lori is hands down one of the most compassionate, thoughtful, and fierce women I know, and I'm thrilled to have her here to talk about her experience as a nurse on the front lines of the global pandemic, so you can all hear it straight from the source. But before we get started, I want to share with you that this episode marks the launch of Who the Fuck for a Cause, which will give every listener the opportunity to donate to a charitable cause associated with the topic discussed by each guest in their episode. So before you jump to the next piece of content in your queue, visit whothefck.com slash donate and show our guests that you're listening and you support them. Now, before we dive right into current events, welcome to the show, Lori. Why don't you share a little background on why you became a nurse? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, back in, oh gosh, well, let's just say when I was about 16 years old, I decided that I wanted to become a nurse. As cliche as it may sound, I wanted to help people. I had gone through two scary things as, as a young adult and child. Both of my grandfathers were uh, diagnosed with cancer pretty early on, and both of them required care in the home before they had passed. And their nurses were just these warriors that came in and became part of the family. And I think they gave my grandfather some dignity towards the end. And I just really admired them. I thought it was wonderful. I really wanted to be able to do that for somebody one day. And I thought initially in college, I was going to go into adult oncology, which would be, you know, adult patients with cancer. And I ended up in adolescent medicine at a children's hospital on the East Coast. I wasn't really sure about pediatrics, but I found a happy medium with my 11 and older. And I've been doing that for almost 12 years now. So I can't see uh, myself really doing anything else except lately. Uh (laughs) If ever there were a time to be questioning your career choice, now now might be it. Maybe not as much questioning it. I think that anybody in the medical profession right now is just, you know, you want to help people still and perhaps even more than you ever have. But it, it's at it comes at a cost with the dangers that are associated with it right now, which we'll, we'll get into for sure. But I really appreciate that introduction because actually I don't think I've ever asked you that question. And I didn't really bring it up in the intro, but we've known each other since we were five. I'd say we probably became good friends later into our teens, but I never asked you why you became a nurse. And that's, uh, it's super interesting for me to hear that. So. Well, there you go. Well, it's funny because in listening to other episodes of your podcast, I've been like, oh, wow, never, never heard it from that perspective. You know, I feel like there's gaps where we might have been a little busier, where we might have missed some of these stories. So it's 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 nice to hear from, you know, down, the, you know, down the road. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, that makes me happy, too, because I certainly take these interviews as opportunities to inspect my own memories and feelings about things and to be able to see things from different perspectives and ask myself, you know, had I thought about it that way. So I'm glad that that's resonating, at least with one person. (laughs) So (laughs) when we get kind of into the conversation here about the pandemic as it's happening, I imagine we have different timelines of events for both of us based on your profession and our disparate locations since I'm located in the U.S. hotbed just outside of Seattle and you're on the East Coast. And when I 
heard first of the coronavirus, COVID-19, it didn't feel like there was much cause for alarm. And I actually can't even really remember when I first heard or read about it. I only remember being on vacation in Hawaii. I'd like taken this self-care trip and I was a couple of days away from coming home from Maui. And I saw that the most prominent outbreak in our nation had incidentally occurred in the new city where we had just moved a few weeks prior, which it was, it's just kind of set up all of my like sensors because we've had a lot of really insane, stressful things, traumatic things happen over the course of the past year. And it was like, obviously we would move to the city where the outbreak happens. That sounds about right. And so it went from like off the radar completely to extremely alarming in what seemed like the blink of an eye. So for you, Tell me about what your first experience hearing about COVID-19 was like and what sense of urgency did you have around it, if any? So the very first even knowing about it at all, I remember I don't watch the news. I'm not somebody who watches the news until now. Now I can't get enough of it. I, I sneak upstairs away from my husband to go and, you know, look for a little bit because it's become something that we've all, I think, have kind of. Yeah, we're consumed and confused. Oh, 100 percent. So but it, it's never something that's really on in my house. I think we just try to live as much in the moment. I was flipping through and it, and it stopped on a news channel. And I remember seeing this woman in China ironing out masks that had been used. So I'm assuming that she had washed them and was sitting at a table ironing them. And in my head, I'm like what's she doing? Like, is she trying to sell them? Like at this point in time there, I mean, they kept showing pictures of people walking around the streets, wearing them. Like it almost seemed a bit ridiculous. And at the time I just remember thinking like, Oh my God, is she going to sell them? Like, is she trying to make money? Like, how do they not have them? Like, how could there be a shortage? How could there be a shortage? But then I thought, for some reason, I thought that like she was trying to make a profit out of them. But now looking back, I feel so guilty for that reaction because she was probably either trying to make money because she's unemployed or trying to do goodwill because she, they were running low on supplies. And now we're low on supplies and we're having to do some of these, you know, same creative measures to try and make sure that people are protected. I feel horrible. That was my reaction. And again, it was like a glimpse, but like, you know how hindsight, you see things a little bit differently. To to interject though, I don't think that that's something to feel bad about. I think that that's a reaction that was probably pretty reasonable in the moment, considering the lack of knowledge we had on what was actually happening. For sure. And I think that that leads me to my next thing. Um, I remember shortly after that, my brother had sent me an email like a week before they closed the schools down in Pennsylvania, which was about March 13th. And he sent me this email, like just wanted your opinion about COVID-19. Now my brother's super analytical. He's a bit more of a worrier, you know, always weighing the pros and cons. He's a finance guy. So, you know, I kind of just said, I'm like at, at work, they're telling us that we should not be concerned about this. This is no no more scary than it should be to somebody that would be faced with influenza or any of the flus. Anyone who would be at risk to get the flu would be at risk to get this. And I'm thinking, you know, elderly, immunocompromised, the very young. I'm not thinking that it can touch me. I'm thinking that it's something that it's this hype. I wasn't really like connecting the things in China, like how bad it was over there. I think in my mind, I'm thinking like they don't have the healthcare that we have, like they don't have the things that they, that we have. So like it can't touch us. We were being reassured by, you know, the highest higher ups in the hospital that I work at that this is not something to be afraid of. This just wash your hands, do what you 
done the whole time you've been a nurse, like, you know, wear your masks, wear your gloves, you go home to your family. I've taken care of kids with, you know, diseases that are horrible that like if you were faced on the streets, you would be extremely scared about, you know, like TB and pertussis and, you know, Shigella and people that have traveled internationally that we don't know what they have. And we've felt protected because we've had our gear. And I never went in a room thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get this. I thought I'm protected because I have the equipment that I need. So it never crossed my mind that I was going to be bringing something home to my family because, you know, we have safeguards against that. And 12 years in, like I said, I haven't, I haven't gotten sick. I haven't gotten anything. So to me, that was like proof that everything that we were doing, we were doing well. Yeah. And it's like really hard to fathom how little the higher ups, at least I would hope it's that they didn't know and not that it wasn't, um, it was something that they were trying to shield any employees from. I, I would especially in a hospital, I would imagine that's not the case, but like, don't let me make assumptions. You know, I think anything can happen, but at the end of the day, you know, if anybody in any of the healthcare systems had a clue how quickly it would spread or how likely it would be for it to turn for us the way it happened in China initially, you know, I feel like people would have been making the decisions to buy more supplies earlier on and having the uh, having just kind of the appropriate understanding of what the inventory needed to be. But it seems like the projections were just completely off. And then those errors are essentially just, you know, being communicated downstream. And then that's how you end up in a position where we are now, which is that people weren't well informed. By the time you were, it was too late because the panic had already ensued. People are already out buying everything that medical professionals need as if they need to have these things in their home as regular uh, as regular resources for literally you staying at home by yourself for the next 30 days at this point, you know? And so like, it feels a bit like the Titanic not having enough life lifeboats. Like that's the analogy that I came up with because that is a really good analogy. I thought of one too, but it wasn't, it wasn't as good as that. It was like when you have a really bad winter and you don't have enough salt for the roads because you didn't anticipate it. And then that's the thing too, though, is like it is uh, it is something that has just become so glaringly obvious. Many have been comparing this pandemic to a war. And my sister and I were actually talking earlier today and she even said that. She said thinking about, you know, people who come back from wars, like it's really something that people who are on the front lines right now, it's going to be very much kind of a similar adjustment back into the less chaotic moments once we actually get there. And as a relative outsider, I'd say the comparison to a war seems relatively accurate. Supplies need to be rationed, like you were just saying. The danger is largely for those like yourself on the front lines. Pop-up facilities are being created in extremely unlikely places, and liquor and luxury brand companies are halting their normal operations to produce masks, to produce ventilators, to produce sanitizers. In your position, do you feel like that analogy also tracks, that as medical professionals, you're essentially our soldiers fighting for the rest of us? I mean, that's 100% how it feels. I think that it feels like almost like we were drafted, right? The war had a draft and like you had no choice and you had to leave your family and do this job that you've been doing all along. But you don't have the protection that made you feel like you could perform your job. Like you go in with this fear um, 
and I've never experienced anything like it. And I know that I've listened to so many um, accounts like online and on the news of healthcare providers saying the same thing, but you, you feel unsafe and I don't, I just can't compare it to anything else. I know that that sounds (laughs) so inadequate, but it, it feels a little, it feels a little unfair. Some people are saying, oh, they signed up for this job. Like this is not (laughs) the job that anyone signed up for. Like maybe if I was an army nurse and I knew I was going to be at the front lines without medical equipment, without the things that I needed, like without, you know, you have like a kit of a couple things that you can use to be creative with the things that you need. But I think of that movie, The Painted Veil, where they go and it's dealing with cholera, like out in who knows where, I forget where it is, but they like literally are wearing those cloth masks and that's what people are making. Like it seems so surreal. Yeah. I can't even imagine what you're experiencing because the idea of it and knowing that you're so closely connected to it and knowing, you know, other people in our family and our close circle are on the front lines of it as well. It's hard to wrap your head around as even what I would call somebody like myself who is a bystander, let alone, you know, you walking into work every day and having to go through the ups and downs and the highs and the lows and how many highs are there really? Because it's, I mean, it sounds like it's just sheer chaos. How do you maintain your your calm and your your even keeled nature when the entire circumstance is chaos like it's not like there's a moment you have to get through right now there's literally no light at the end of the tunnel anything that anybody's saying is a guess at best so far i've been able to because for whatever reason this virus does not seem to be hitting our young in the same way that it is hitting our old i mean you know i feel like all of us know that at this point in time and i think that this is kind of what everybody that I'm working with is going through. Like we're screening people. We're like waiting. And when you're screening people and their parents came up to you at the desk and they didn't have a mask on and they're talking to you and you know, they're there's you're sharing the pen with them and then their child develops a cough and then you send a test for COVID and you're like, was I just exposed? I just was with their family. I was just with the patient. They didn't have the symptom and now they do. So you're constantly thinking I was totally exposed. And then the biggest thing in the back of my mind is, okay, if I was exposed, do I then quarantine myself every single day that I work with the new start time? Because chances are I'm going to have the same day repeat over and over again, because as more and more cases continue to happen, you you either go home and just hope to God that you didn't miss a step, that you you know, wiped everything. I think I wiped my phone six times <laughs> in my car before I even got out of my car, before I entered my home um, to, you know, go into my house to, you know, greet my husband, to greet my kids. I have even texted um, my husband, Matt, uh, on the way home from work. And I said, I'm going to drive around until nine o'clock if you could just have them in bed because I was terrified to touch my children and see them before bed because I thought that they were going to touch it on me as as clean as I felt like I was being and as careful as I felt like I was being I felt like I couldn't see them and then the whole next day while I hadn't been in my house the whole day I had sanitized everything I felt like I needed to clean everything and my knuckles were completely raw 
and red just because I just am so fearful that like while I'm putting myself in this position and when I say putting myself in this position, I'm choosing to go to work you know, grateful that I have a job, grateful that I have a paycheck, but I'm choosing to go to work. And, you know, that may touch my family. If it doesn't touch my children, will they carry it and give it to my mom who's, who's over 65 and who's watching my kids? It's, it's terrifying. I can't even begin to think about how nerve wracking that must be in the way you just described how, how essential, you know, that level of detail is to making sure that you're safe and your family's safe. But the kind of the neuroses that it creates, right? Like, am I clean enough? Is there a chance that there's something that could attach to something else? Like I read about how it spreads and having a droplet (laughs) that can go from somebody else to you within six feet, a droplet, something microscopic through your mouth, nose, ears, eyes, whatever. It's crazy how powerful this virus is for that to be all it takes to spread. So it's not surprising that that's how you feel because the reality is you should feel that way. It's extremely dangerous. It's terrifying. And the moment for me that really solidified, I think, the severity, not just of the the pandemic. I, I think that kind of just as itself is obviously terrifying. But you have always been somebody who is just like cut and dry. This is my job. This is how things go. You could talk to me about it like it's nothing like you you just it's the way that you work and it's the things that you do that I could never do. And when you told me that you had a panic attack at work, I was like, I told Holly that I didn't even really know how to process that because you're kind of the steady hand that I look to when things like this happen oh, yeah. to kind of reassure that I didn't even it's going to be fine. Know that that's what it was. I thought I had COVID-19. I thought I had COVID-19 and I was having a panic attack. I mean, I have been blessed and I tell you this all the time that I am so grateful for my mental health, whatever it is, I can like rationalize, I can see that other people have it, whatever it is, I don't, I'm not afflicted with anxiety or depression or those things, I I treat it every day and luckily, thank God. But I, in that moment, had so much empathy for people that have anxiety attacks, for people that have anxiety, because I felt it. I actually felt a knot in my throat. Um, which is globus for all my medical friends out there. And I kept swallowing, but I'm like, oh my God, is this the sore throat that they're talking about? Is this the scratchy throat? Oh my God, I have it. I went out through, like past the ER, which I should never have done, but I went out there to get air with my friend that I work with, Ricardo. And we sat in the front and I passed my friend, Lena, who works in the ER. She's an angel. And I said, Lena, what's, you know, what's the mood in the ER? Like, how's it, you know, how's it going? And she goes, it's heavy. It's really heavy. But, you know, people are signing up for shifts. People are coming to work. People, there's people that want to help. And um, I just got like teary eyed. I was very moved by her. She's so sweet. And it, it kind of like brought me back to life in a sense. Like I, I felt like I couldn't breathe and I went outside. And then when I talked to her and then I breathed the air and then I was fine, (laughs) I knew that I was okay. Like, I'm like, oh, the symptoms went away. I was probably experiencing some sort of panic. Yeah. Oh, and it's, It's funny that 
uh, I mean, not really funny, haha, but it's it's interesting that you you go to that place too, right? Because you you are a medical professional and you absolutely must know more about this than I do. And probably most people who are sitting here going, it's allergy season, it's cold season, I get sinus infections this time of year. Like, is it COVID or is it just one of the normal things that would happen in my life? And you just start to speculate that kind of anything could be it. And you basically send yourself into a spiral if you allow yourself to follow that feeling. So I was actually feeling kind of sick a couple of weeks ago and I pretty sure it was like this kind of the onset of a sinus infection, but I was just like, the only thing I can do is pay extra close attention to how I feel. Like there's nothing I can do right now. There's not enough testing, so I can't go get tested just because I want to know. But then you also don't know who you're going to encounter who might have it, who hasn't been tested and doesn't know they have it. And so there's all this ambiguity around it also, which is, oh yeah, I, I think the scariest part, it's like we don't have answers for some of the things that we really need answers for. And that's something that I'm curious about your opinion on, which is, I mean, the the lack of testing here is, in my opinion, as a non-medical professional, is one of the biggest reasons it's spreading as rapidly and aggressively as it is. Because if we knew how to, like, how we actually needed to segment people to separate them to make sure that we were covering the right cases in priority, like, it would be a completely different story. That's, I mean, from, again, a bystander view and what we're seeing on the news or reading, it's like, okay, we don't have enough supplies and we don't have enough tests. What is the game plan here? Like, is this the shortage of everything, even figuring out if you have it is a a luxury unless you're basically in critical condition? Right. And I really think that there's probably a bunch of nurses. I mean, this is like sobering, but a bunch of nurses that are walking around with it (laughs) Um, because they're not really testing employees until you get like pretty sick. Um, or unless there's a known exposure, we had an exposure on our unit. Um, a girl that I work with, uh, tested positive. I worked with her like a couple of shifts prior to her starting to feel really sick, but she, you know, she mentioned that she had allergies or she's like, this isn't it. Like, this is, you know, just my normal spring stuff going on. And four days later, she, she called out of work. She said, I, I just not feeling right. The next day she tested positive for COVID-19. So, Again, she's doing well. She's doing great. She she said for her, it was the flu was worse. Strep throat was worse. And I know a lot of people are reporting very mild symptoms. But then six nurses had to go into quarantine and couldn't work on our unit. So we were a tad shorthanded. On top of not having enough of anything else, now we don't have enough hands. <laughs> Which, you know, ended up working out. We had low senses. People are staying home. People aren't getting the typical stuff that would, you know, cause them to come into the hospital. So thank God for that. I guess that's a good point because I was wondering about certain things. Obviously, people will still have things like appendicitis or whatever. I'm sure people's bones are still breaking. But I have to be honest, I feel like that has to probably be down with people not doing anything active. (laughs) Well, we have a trampoline. So I mean, I think of things like that. Like I'm like, and I and I yell at my kids all the time. I'm like, stop it right now. We are not going to ER today. Like, (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) And I say it, I said it even before this, but you know, well, it's funny that you said that too, because I mean, my sister had uh, my nephew about a month ago, and she was due I don't know, maybe last Friday, I think, actually. So he was very early. And at first, she she was pretty upset about it. And 
I was like, you're so lucky that you had that baby a month ago because I would not want to be giving birth in this healthcare climate right now. I know my both my brother's wives are due um, next month. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's really scary. I know. Totally scary. Yeah. I mean, the fear of already just being in the hospital as a as a pregnant woman, but then for your baby to be born into that environment where it's just so high risk, like it's it's really scary to think about. You had mentioned when you were going through your experience of feeling that panic that you were able to kind of have a bit of grounding because of what the one of your coworkers said to you. So do you feel that you and your coworkers are able to act as that support for each other? Or is it challenging because there's so much combined stress between everyone? Or maybe it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both. I think you have, like when I, I had texted you that I, that I was um, reassigned to the, to the unit, um, I was part of the emergency room that's sectioned off to basically house patients that are waiting for test results for COVID-19. So a girl had texted me. She said, I just want to give you an FYI that you know, you're going to be on the the unit that's waiting for, for, you know, COVID results. And I literally, I know I can say it on your podcast, but I was like, fuck, oh my God, this is the day that I'm going to get it. I sat in my car and I just literally waited until the last minute that I could go into the hospital because I just, I was like, I can't, be- can't believe I have to go there. Like, this is bullshit. I'm pissed. This isn't the unit that I work on. Now, when I got there, you know, now we're all doing, we have to wear a mask for 13 hours of the day, the same mask, um, which I'll get to that in a second. But I get to this, I'll get to this unit and this woman who's been like at this hospital forever, she's like a lifer, she's done it all. She's like, oh yeah, like I'm waiting for them. Like, why won't they send me to New York? I think I had COVID-19 already. Just made me feel so much better and made me feel like I was being such a baby about everything. Not a baby, but that, okay, she has a good head on her shoulders. Like she's thinking about it. She has her mask and her goggles on the whole thing. You go from that. And then, you know, you talk to another girl who's like, I felt so bad. I told my son when I came home that I couldn't hug him. And I ran up to the shower and I cried in the shower and he sat on the toilet and waited for me to hug me. And, you know, it's, you're going back and forth all day. And, um, it's, it's actually good. It's good because it allows you to process your extremes. It allows you to, I mean, anyone who works in a hospital knows that's your therapy. You, you talk to people who are in it with you. Uh, for the most part, people are pretty extroverted. So like anything that they're saying, I mean, there's no filter. People are saying stuff, saying what they feel, saying what they think. It has to happen that way. And I, I think that that's one of the areas that's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out when the pandemic slows and eventually dissolves is how will doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals feel going back to work without this chaos, with the resources that you need. And, you know, because we compared this to war earlier, I do feel that there is this potential likelihood that, you know, it, it still feels traumatic at, in your workplace after the fact, because you're going to see a lot of different things and experience a lot of different things than you have before. And those aren't necessarily the types of experiences that stop when the event stops. Thinking about that, what has been the most frustrating part about this experience for you and perhaps others in your position as well? I think the most frustrating part is, um, at least on my unit. Now, 
just so that all of your listeners know, my hospital, being a children's hospital, we are nowhere near where New York is. I think the we're anticipating that we could get there. We're anticipating that we could get asked to house adult patients to use our ventilators. I think that these things are being talked about from a higher level, but we're like the fourth heat in this war. Like we're, you know, kind of waiting on the lines. Like I think we, I mean, we're certainly dealing with COVID. We're testing for COVID, but just to give you an example, the surgical unit is is not closed, but like half closed because all the elective surgeries, like if you're supposed to get your tonsils out next month, they've canceled you because it's not medically necessary, right? So all of those nurses are on administrative leave. So they're just like, you know, hanging at home where my unit only has five patients right now. We have a 20 bed unit. Why are we not on admin leave? What we're doing is we're floating our nurses to other units, let their nurses take some days off. And when you're trying to contain a virus, you know, I don't care. I'll go to work every day, but like you shouldn't be floated everywhere in the hospital because guess what? If somebody, if I'm exposed, I just exposed three separate units to this virus. I think that there's ways in which the institution is doing its best in trying to figure out these things as they come up. But I think when you in your head are just like, there's things that they could be doing a little bit better that are kind of obvious to you. It's super frustrating. I think another really frustrating thing, it's not, you know, the general public having masks. Um, Certainly they probably have their own stories. Maybe they've an immunosuppressed loved one. Maybe they just are so rocked with fear that they feel like they need to have them. Like, I'm not so upset about them having supplies, but I am upset about people that know better not social distancing, not staying away from the family event or the party or the wedding when, you know, I'm wiping my phone six times before I get into the driveway. Like, I think that those things are probably the most frustrating. Yeah. And to go back to one of the things that you said about the way the hospital is distributing your nurses, it is really fascinating to think about why that decision would be made. I understand as far as, you know, having maybe a shortage of people, but are you able to express that to the people in your leadership chain? And is that something that people can see from the top? Like, do they, are they missing that? Cause it feels like it should be obvious. So HR is working hard in like making some policies to kind of govern, you know, I mean, this is boring stuff for your listeners, but trying to make things to govern, you know, the nurse managers, I think that they're dealing with so much, like our nurse manager is being shared amongst two units right now. So they had an exposure. We had an exposure. We had to, there's this whole investigation process that goes on when somebody is exposed to COVID, you have to talk to them about, you know, who they had contact with. You have to give them a vital signs recording sheet uh, where they have to take their temperature twice a day. Like it's involved and you have to check up on each person. It's an HR, it's an HR nightmare in the business world, in the business world. So I can only imagine how much of an HR nightmare it is in the medical field. Yeah. And I just don't think that they have, they don't have anything. Like there's no sort of, um, pandemic related protocol with what you do with your extra staff when your other units are staffed. Like, I think they're trying to give respite to as many nurses as they can. So if we've had a couple shifts where we didn't have to show up and another unit is full and they're obviously feeling the stress, like all of us are, you know, float to their unit so that they can then take the day off. But if you're 
like I said, trying to contain the virus, to me, put them out admittedly for two weeks and then bring us back in in two weeks, like kind of as much as you can keep the shifts together. Because if I'm in on Monday and then I don't come in until Friday and I start symptoms, you know, somewhere in between, I've infected three units and, you know, 15 people, not infected, but at least exposed. And then those people have to stay home. And then it's a nightmare figuring out like, who those people are if you're on a unit that you're unfamiliar with. Like, I don't know all the nurses when I go to another unit. I maybe know the two that I talk to the shift, but. Yeah, it's interesting that there isn't a protocol for that sort of thing. I have a sneaking suspicion after all of this, there might be. (laughs) I think so too. And this is going to sound so horrible, but I think that this isn't the last that we're going to see of this. Um, when you and I had kind of first started talking about this, you had, you had mentioned, like, is this something that I'd ever experienced before? And obviously, we haven't experienced a global pandemic, but, like, has there been this just sense of, like, you can't stop, like, you just have to keep pushing through because literally humanity is at stake here. It's sort of like <laughs> that kind of pressure that you're under. I think, like, every cold and flu season, everybody feels a little bit, you know, you're, you you discharge a bed and a new person's coming in and not necessarily for cold and flu, but it's bed for bed. And it's, um, you know, sometimes they're doubling up private beds. Like we've been over 100% full since uh, the fall, since the beginning of this flu season. And then that level of anxiety I experienced back in 2009, I had been a nurse about a year uh, when sw- the swine flu epidemic happened, started back in April, I think of 2009. And we had our first couple cases. And our cases were kids that had neurologic psychosis from from swine flu. And that was super scary. And we went in and these kids were psychotic and they weren't thinking right. And we had to go in with masks. And you're trying to convey like empathy and trust. And we, you know, we're, you know, totally suited up. And we didn't know a lot about that virus. And it was staggering how many people died from that virus. It was like 4,000 people that died from swine flu. And it went until mid-July. And then the, the swine flu season, it came back in August, I think. It started up again end of August. Now they were developing a vaccine, which is a little bit easier given that it's a type of uh, flu. And if you recall that year, we were given two separate flu shots. You got your regular flu shot and then you got your swine flu shot. After that in 2010, they had incorporated the swine flu into the regular flu shot that everyone had gotten. Um, Now, I don't know if everyone had gotten the swine flu shot or if that was just nurses, but I remember it being very scary. And and again, a lot of people died. There was a ton of cases. I feel like it didn't get the hype that this is getting because it wasn't global. it was something not specific to the United States um, the whole time. Um, I think it had originated also overseas. But um, again, it wasn't this crazy contagious virus. It, it hit people pretty much the same. And it also hit people except for the random, very random, very small percentage of kids that had these neurologic problems with it. Um, but that was scary. Thinking it could get into your brain, thinking it could cause you to have like um, – permanent psychosis or a semi-permanent psychosis. Um, But that's really the only other experience I've had with this type of mania. All of us were a little on edge taking care of those patients for sure. Yeah, it's it's really something to consider too, because I remember that epidemic and it felt really intense and there was a lot of press around it. And at the same time, it was not 
and part of it could be because social media wasn't what it is now either. Uh, the media in general is a lot different just because of how much more touch points we have. That is true. I had a Verizon flip phone with no internet back then. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you and me both, I think. And, and so I do feel the like Voyager, that was a good phone. <laughs> I do think part of it is, you know, this sense of like, how much more do we know now because we can surface information faster. But at the same point, obviously the swine flu wasn't spreading with the rapidity of, uh, COVID-19 and, even more so, it felt like there was a more immediate response to it, whether that's accurate or not, and or maybe I'm just disillusioned because it was so long ago now. But I know that plenty of people will agree or disagree with this, but dr- we've been dragging our feet on our response to this. And it gets back to the testing side of it and the PPE. And I had actually read an article that said it's no surprise that healthcare professionals in China recently reported higher than normal rates of anxiety, depression, insomnia, and psychological distress, and that doctors and nurses in America are being asked to quarantine themselves from loved ones, treat waves of seriously ill patients without proper equipment, and in many cases, comfort families who couldn't be with their loved ones when they died. So that's a direct quote from the article that I read, and it really goes without saying that the U.S. is not far behind China in terms of the timeline. And so from where you're standing, do you think that we're prepared to treat the mental health of our healthcare workers who are in the trenches during this pandemic? No. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, I mean, no, I think. And again, we've, you know, obviously compared this to wartime scenarios. I think that similar to our soldiers, like they, they're, they're not getting any, and my, my husband, he's served two tours in Iraq and they don't get mental health counseling while they're in the trenches. And they rarely request it when they come home because of the stigma, because of the other things. And I think like a lot of people don't want to relive, you know, the trauma that they've, that they've, you know, experienced. And I think that, while this is happening, like, I think that there's been a lot of really wonderful things. Like I know that therapists have reached out to do therapy sessions on like Zoom or on FaceTime or apps and, and things like that, but but that can help, which is wonderful. But I also think that it's just something that's going to have to occur when it's over, because when you're continuing to like relive the trauma every time you put on your scrubs to go to work, I just don't know how you heal in between. Certainly you can find, you know, the joy and find little things to help you get through. But unless you take away the trauma and take away the the thing that's causing, um, I don't know how you can make it go away while it's, you know, in the in these stages. Exactly. Yeah, I, it's interesting, too, that you said that, uh, you know, that you, you know, you're putting on your scrubs, you're going in every day, and it just feels like probably Groundhog's Day for you guys in the sense of how you're not necessarily reliving your past trauma, but you're going into a war zone. You are putting yourself into a traumatic situation and you don't know what's going to happen. And not that that's necessarily different than your other days at work, that you don't know what's going to happen, but there's not really a clear understanding of how much this specific thing, the the coronavirus is going to impact your day and at what level 
and understanding that people are dying from this and it's very unpredictable and you might be exposed to it. Like it's a lot different than saying, I don't know what's going to happen today. A kid might come in with XYZ thing that you've handled before or XYZ thing that is not contagious and highly, uh, highly risky. You know, there's a lot that really says to me about the fact that you're, you're putting on your uniform and you're going into a hospital and you're suiting up to, to fight this thing. Like it really, the analogy, in my opinion, really tracks pretty honestly to the wartime comparison because you have to go into that environment prepared to see some of the worst things or experience some of the worst things you've ever experienced in your life. Like I'd venture to guess that some situations like this are emotional no matter what, but like, how do you, how do you get yourself out of bed in the morning knowing that that's what you have to do and knowing that your children, like you said, your husband are at home and well, your husband's working, but you know, when you come home, you, you have that fear. Like at what point, I guess I'm asking a bunch of questions, but I think like at what point do you feel like you can breathe and and take a step back and pull yourself out of the trauma while it is still happening? What it ends up coming to is more and more exposure to the same thing. Like you and I have talked about this in the past, like in regards to other things, but kind of like the more that you expose yourself to a certain type of traumatic experience, um, it can not always, but it can kind of um, become your new normal and it can kind of dull out the initial trauma. So that day that I had the panic attack that I was talking to you about was the first time that I had been with a patient who was being tested for COVID-19, been with the parent who also had symptoms. Um, I had handed her a mask. I mean, I, I can like really rewind that whole day in my head. And, you know, as we started testing more and more people, it became less traumatic. I do think as healthcare providers, you do have these little pockets into which you can kind of put all your sadness and all your grief and suffering to get through your day. Like, you know, we see sad things in a children's hospital where, where kids die, where some kids don't get better, where the amount of mental anguish and behavioral health suffering is just something that isn't that we can't fix, or at least we can't fix right now. And I think all of us are kind of programmed for their own version of what they're kind of used to in a sense, but what they've been exposed to enough where they can kind of put it in a box. Mine is, you know, the mental health. I take care of patients every day with all these various mental health disorders. And, you know, sometimes we have to restrain kids. Sometimes we have to, you know, give them injections into their arm and have them tied to a bed. And not to say that that doesn't affect me. I have a lot of empathy for these patients. I can't wait to get them out. But um, to me, it's like a means to an end. We had a nurse who was floated to us who was from the neonatal intensive care unit where, you know, there's babies and she had to go home. She was, she, she was involved in one of those events and she was beside herself. She was crying. She was like so upset. And I'm like, but you see babies die. Like it was like, I couldn't really like understand, like, but that was her box. Like that's how, that's the thing that she's used to that she's able to kind of put somewhere because it's an expected part, not always, not every day, but it is one of the traumas that she's kind of like hardened herself to in a sense. And 
you know, if I went, if I was floated to the NICU and my patient was one of the ones that, you know, had to pass away, I would be, you know, a mess forever about it. Like, it doesn't mean that you're ready to take on every trauma, but you can kind of compartmentalize. And I think as we get more, and or at least I'm hoping as we get more exposure to this, or we can accept our new normal that we're able to also place some of the grief and suffering that we're feeling about all of this um, into into a box, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sums up my desire to understand how you can compartmentalize what's happening during your workday because it has to be challenging to do that so your professional experiences and the emotions that come out of that don't pour over into your family life. You know, you'd mentioned, obviously, Matt's a war veteran, and he also is a state trooper. And so you both have really high stress, intense jobs that require you to be of service in some way to citizens who, in many cases, don't have the ability to, I mean, honestly, like, like you can't care for yourself. That's why we go to a hospital. Law enforcement is there for a reason. But like you essentially put on this hat and say, you know, I, I take responsibility in my role to care for my patients unconditionally. And at this point in time, you know, you're putting yourself at risk in a much bigger way than you have before. And as you mentioned very early in the conversation, you're putting yourself uh, and your family at risk because of that. And so when you think about that, like, what do you, what comes up for you as far as like, when you're going into work, like, are you thinking about your kids? Are they thinking about you? Do they understand how much, you know, risk there is for you? I obviously, you're probably not telling your young children that there's a chance that you could be exposed to this in the worst possible outcome. But like, do they understand that you are in a position that is relatively dangerous right now? Um, I don't think I don't think that they or, well, so my my oldest, my my daughter, she's she just turned seven. So um, she does have some understanding. She she says, oh, can I give this to my friends? You know, after coronavirus is over. So, you know, she knows about it. She knows that we're, you know, we're home and we're not going to school because of these things. But um, I don't think she really realizes that I'm any more in danger than anybody else. Um, I started sewing my own masks. I have a sewing machine and I learned to sew. Well, I taught myself last year and um, I've been sewing my own. And she, so today she goes, I mean, I've been making them for the last week or so. And she goes, why are you making all those masks? And I said, you know, at work in case we run out. Um, and she kind of looked at me sort of thoughtfully um, but didn't really press. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really want like to she doesn't there. usually see you making your mask. So she's probably thinking right. that's and again, curious. I'm doing something that is different. Again, I made, I made, um, uh, don't, I fried my own donuts today. So I'm definitely doing, I think everybody in quarantine are doing something. We all have new hobbies, Lori. We all have new we hobbies. We all have new hobbies. Um, things you didn't know so. you wanted to learn how to do. <laughs> They wanted to make pizza dough. And I was like, what about donut dough? Because that sounded so much better. But yeah, she she had a little bit of a bellyache yesterday. And she she was she was she started crying. And I was like, what's the matter? You know, I'm feeling her head. She said she felt fine. You know, it felt fine. She started crying. And she said, I, I, I don't want to die. 
And I started tearing up. I, I said, oh, well, why would you, you're not dying. Why would you think that? And she said, well, a lot of people are getting sick and they're dying, mom. And, you know, you, you think what you're doing isn't touching them because you're doing it like playfully, like I'm playing the records and making my masks. And, you know, it's, I hope that it's not in the seriousness, like, oh, got to make them real quick before I head out into the trenches. Like, it's certainly not like that. Like, we try to keep our life as lighthearted as we can with making a, you know, very playful, like I said, environment, but some of it's going to cross over. I mean, like you said, me and my husband are both in these roles and, you know, we talk to each other, like the news has been on. I try to watch another room, but she kind of creeps up and you're like, oh, you're there. What did you just see on the news? But uh, she's she's a smart little girl. She's 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 perceptive. I think she she knows a little bit more than we're giving her her credit for right now. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest areas that deserves an applause throughout all this is to the parents who are at home with their kids going through this together and really trying to help, especially younger children, understand why these restrictions are in place right now, because, I mean, I honestly think part of the reason that so many people weren't following the social distancing, uh, I don't want to call them rules, but I guess that's what they are, uh, was that people, Holly and I were joking, they're like, parents just can't like be cooped up in their house with their kids all day. Like they, they're like, let's go to the park. I can't deal with this. Like you guys need to run around. And, and for a while, because the idea was the message that was coming out was, oh, well, kids aren't going to get it. Okay, fine. Let the kids play together. And so I do feel like there has been a lot of really intense expectation placed on parents to be able to articulate the severity of something that is really out of scope for those young minds. And so I really do applaud people who are parents going through this and trying to help their kids understand in a way that makes sense, but doesn't prompt too many questions because you don't want a child to have all of that weight on them at such a young age. It's, it's gotta be extremely stressful just from that aspect alone, I imagine, because you don't know what else they're hearing and, and how they're interpreting that either. So I, I appreciate just kind of the fact that you're saying you do try to keep it lighthearted and let it be what it is and and help her understand that there's a reason we're at home and we're doing these things, but trying to not navigate towards the severity of it, especially in the context of your role, because obviously you don't want your daughter to be afraid for you every time you leave, because that in and of itself is going to be even more traumatic. Oh yeah. It's like a, it's total work tactic too. It's like, What's, what's reassuring to me, like what I'm reassured by is that your vital signs were good today. Like whenever you're, you're like delivering, like not bad news, but like when you're protecting the bad news or it's just like, what I'm happy about is this, or what, you know, what makes me really happy is this. And you're totally Like all this bad shit's happening over there, but it's fine. Don't worry about that. Look over here. Yes, look Exactly look over there, look at the pretty bird. It's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> I, As a child, it has to be just so confusing. I can't even like trying to imagine being an older kid, like who's missing their graduations, their, their problems, all that stuff is one thing, but because you at least have the mental awareness of why that's happening for a young child who really can't grasp the concept and then to kind of grow into a world where 
for an extended period of time, everybody's basically living like a shut in is insane. I don't think I ever believed we would be experiencing something like this in our lifetime. And even though statistically it was bound to happen, I definitely am grateful for the fact that we at least have means of communicating with each other where children and adults alike can digitally communicate and keep their social lives going in some way. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, I actually I had this conversation with somebody else recently. We need to stop calling it social distancing to its physical distancing. Uh, totally. And I hate it. And I never want to hear it after this is all over ever again. Right. <laughs> I'm like, nobody wants to socially distance anymore. Even the introverts. I, I said that to, on a work call today. I was like, people who genuinely don't want to be around other people are going stir crazy. So something's up. It needs to end soon. <laughs> I know. And I am grateful. I'm grateful for the things that we do have. Like my kids have been able to, you know, like messenger their friends on messenger kids and uh, do their work from home, which would have been, um, you know, something that they wouldn't have been able to do. Now, Liam's is like the letter S. So, you know, we kind of skip that (laughs) as for skip that shit. But um, so (laughs) but, um, you know, Finley's been able to use a bunch of apps and it is nice to have the media. I also think it's for as many wonderful things as there are. There's all the, the media hype and all the stories, people putting their opinions out there. And while certainly they're a lot of the opinions are ones that I agree with from, you know, medical professionals like myself that I'm friends with, but it's just, it's constant. Like you can't get away from it. And I'm like, I could avoid it, but then what else am I going to do? I'm sitting here. It's a, it's a, it's a vortex. Like you get sucked in. Well, it's super hard not to, because I mean, as a medical professional, I imagine the curiosity because you're in the field and you want to understand what's going on. As somebody who's not in the profession, it's hard to understand what is the most accurate thing that's out there now to your point and so trying to figure out who you should trust in the media is a whole other set of uh kind of decisions you have to make throughout this process and I'm curious from your perspective because of the nature of the work you do and your awareness of everything that's happening right now do you feel like you're better equipped to support you know your friends and family who are experiencing difficult emotions associated with the collective trauma that this pandemic has brought on or do you feel like you know it's pretty much we're all on level playing ground because this has been just an extremely equalizing series of events I think the latter I think that everyone's going through their own thing. I think that suffering and perspective are, you know, people suffering is going to be a matter of their perspective and um, people's circumstances are all going to be different. Like I think of, you know, my sister-in-law who's super pregnant. She's like a month away from delivering. She thinks she's going to be earlier. Um, You know, one is worried whether, you know, her husband is going to be able to be her coach when she goes in. And she also has two small boys who are wild They're She's very used to them being in daycare, like 50 hours a week. They're both like, you know, work professionals where I think it's nice for them to have family time on, on some aspects of it. But at the same time, it's definitely outside of their, their normal. Her and my brother both are working from home full time. Um, and they normally do 50 hour work week. So like what's left for the kids They want to keep my parents away from the kids as much as possible, just in case. I think that that's really hard on them. But at the same time, I think that everyone's own suffering is is the worst, right? Like it's your own thing that you're going through. But I think that my brother's going through that. And while it would be really nice for my brother to like send me a message telling me he's thinking about me before my 
he's going through his own thing. So I think that there has to be some understanding on, on that end of it. Right. Like, I don't, I think that our, like people being able to be there for people is very limited right now because we don't have the bandwidth. We don't have anything extra right now to be able to give, to give to anybody else. I think we're giving it to our kids. We're giving it to our partner. We're giving it to work. Uh, and there's just, there's nothing left over. <laughs> sad, sad as it seems. I think that's a great description of it. Honestly, it's accurate. And it's, it's challenging too, because it really forces us to acknowledge how critical those relationships and those connections and the ability to have that support system is because I think part of the reason we all feel so burnt out and overwhelmed in regardless of profession or lifestyle is that it's so nebulous right now. We don't have perspective on a timeline. We don't have perspective on how it's going to continue to affect us. We don't have perspective on how close we are to getting a vaccine, how quickly these things could come to fruition and solve some of these problems. And when you don't have something to grasp onto, you literally only have hope and trying to function in adulthood, especially on the premise of hope without certainty is alarming at best. So for me, just doing things like this and talking to people and hearing what's going on in their lives throughout this is helpful because it starts to put you back into a sense of normalcy and some kind of routine because even just going to work all day and having, let's say, the same experiences you would have otherwise, the energy is just different. People, like you said, it's hard to be what you need to be for other people. And it's hard to ask for that from somebody else because you know that everybody's kind of in the same boat you are. So it's like bits and pieces of moments in time where we're trying to reach out to each other and trying to say, hey, I'm here for you or what's going on. And one of the things I really have to applaud my company for doing is having, excuse me, is having our senior leadership on my team do weekly digital check-ins with a large team, very many reports who can, who can dial in if they have the time. And really humanizing the experience, not making it just about the business. What's going on? How are you guys doing? Do you have questions about the way we're handling this and what's happening? Because you have to understand each other to be able to get through this, at least in some way. And all of that really kind of roundabout to say, I agree with you. And I also think we have to try our hardest to find the bandwidth sometimes because it is really essential to our ability to get through it as well. For sure. And I think like, as we're, we're also like trying to like figure out what's working for us, right? Like, because we've never been in this situation before. So like our coping mechanisms were stripped away from us, right? Like, so like going to the gym might've been your coping mechanism, like where all the gyms are closed down, right? So like me going shopping and buying like stupid shit you don't decorative need. things for my, sh exactly, shit I don't need from home for goods. my house. I can't wait to go to Home Goods and Target and buy shit I don't need. Yes. That is like number one or two on my list. Plus one. Or go to a movie or meet up with a friend that you haven't seen in a while or, um, you know, really walking around the park without looking at people and thinking that they 
have something or somebody coughs and you're like, ah, you know, like being able to say, God bless you again. <laughs> I have major side eye at the supermarket the other day. They have markers on the floors now. I don't know if they're doing this by you guys. Yes. Yet. Arrows up and yeah, arrows back. Six mm-hmm, feet away mm-hmm. from each other. And yes. um, the gentleman in front of me had gloves on and so did his child. And I'm like standing probably four feet away from him because we're in the checkout and I had to load my stuff onto the counter. And he just gave me some major side eye. And I thought, oh man, I'm totally being that person to him right now he is freaked out and I absolutely I'd like coughed at some point in that exchange and I was like this man is <laughs> well going he to did h- bring his kid I was like he's gonna hunt <laughs> How dare me he down judge you? <laughs> um but yeah like our coping mechanisms are taken totally away so I think we have to like one identify new ones before we can you know identify some you know space and time that we have for other people because part of what's going to make us feel better is by helping other people and like at least I know that a ton of people online have been super helpful. I know that a ton of people have been donating their personal supplies to our hospital. Um, My aunt came over. I had reached out to her because I knew she'd have at least one pair of safety goggles. We're being asked to bring in our own our own goggles. And she brought over like all these pairs of like safety goggles that you would use on a construction site and told me to like bring them in to the people that I work with. I had an elderly couple friend of my friend of the family who could use the masks themselves and gave them to my mom to give to me to bring to work. So people are like digging deep and I'm so appreciative of the people that I know in my life because I think that I personally haven't been able to have anything extra to give to everybody else. But I really do appreciate that that they've, you know, gone gone a step ahead and have reached out to me, um, either with like a kind word or offering supplies, which is, you know, so nice, and generous. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, it is something I think incredibly special about the circumstance that's unfolding is that there is an innate human kindness that exists especially in times of suffering. And while that doesn't apply to everyone, obviously, this is still the world. But <laughs> I mean, it is. like there's still the assholes <laughs> just because there's a pandemic that doesn't change. <laughs> but but I do think that like my hope is that coming out of this, there will be a little bit more of a sense that we are gentler and kinder to each other and that we understand what coming together actually can do as opposed to looking so narrowly at the differences and forcing ourselves down a path of separation because of those minor details as opposed to something like this so so huge and significant bringing us together and like I said about it being this equalizing thing you know it's it's anybody you're seeing videos online of celebrities who are in their homes recording their quote late night shows or whatever on um, on YouTube with their kids crawling all over them there's plenty of people who are trying to you know create content to help keep their businesses afloat because they don't have a means to do what they do in person like I have a couple of friends who are salon owners and I mean don't get me wrong they're going to be rolling in it once this is over they're going to be like cleaning up they should charge per inch (laughs) but but I think that you know people are getting creative and they're not just getting creative for themselves they're getting creative for each other and I my feeling is that there is definitely a really significant growth in the sense of community that's happening in certain areas and 
I'm very, very hopeful that that will continue as the pandemic slows down and we try to get back to whatever, you know, as close to it normal, whatever that was, felt like that we will see more in each other than we have historically. Yeah, I am hopeful for that, too. Um, And I think that that is a choice every day, like to choose to see the good. Um, I think that that's something another part of all of this that's like a little bit of a bummer is that I feel like this has changed my perspective. I think I'm generally somebody who always looks at the good and, you know, sees the positive and flips the negative on its end. And, and I think with this, I've, I've seen my, you know, my dark side come out a little bit, um, which you know that I have, but it's, uh, it's a little unsettling. I, I, really want to, you know, see all the good things that are happening. But and it's so quick how it flips when like when we were talking about the bandwidth, like when you don't have anything extra holding you up. Totally. I mean, I I read an article on CNN earlier today that I sent to my mom, and my sister, that was a, a guy whose wife was giving birth and he was experiencing symptoms only later to be tested and, and diagnosed with COVID, went to the hospital, lied about experiencing symptoms. And now, like what what's going to happen to the people who were exposed to your child, to your wife like it's just kind of crazy how people will make those decisions because that just frankly sums up like the it's it's how selfish are you willing to be I understand how devastating that must be to not be able to see the birth of your child but not seeing the birth of your child versus possibly infecting all of the people who are helping and maybe even your newborn child. It's like, it's mind blowing that people would even consider it. And the, and the people that are just there to help bring your child into this world that are not with their appropriate gear on. And then you do something like that. I think that's, and again, that goes back to like the things that you, the things that you asked me, like that were so frustrating. It's total disregard. It's, it's, it's one thing to not have the supplies. Okay. We, we know that we know that going in, we don't have what we need. Like, all right, we're, we got it. Not we're over it, but we'll, you know, we'll do it. We'll go to work, whatever. But when you have complete disregard, uh, such disrespect, and it's just like a, it's just like, you know, it's a spit in the face. It's it's horrible. But well, because it's it basically puts so many more people at risk, and it's not to your knowledge. I mean, you, to your to your point, you know that there are shortages in supplies and equipment that you need. You know that there are short staffs, but to walk knowingly into an environment and potentially be contagious and able to expose so many people who we do need in your positions is just unbelievably selfish and careless. Oh yeah. And this, and this is like a little off topic, but like Matt, you know, came home um, last night, but I didn't see him until this morning. And he says, yeah, um, you know, guy, uh, you know, got arrested for DUI, um, got into a crash. He goes, of course, the guy that had the DUI lived, killed three people in the other car. So it's like all these people are battling COVID and everything else. And then you have one asshole that could kill people or ruin it for everybody. And he's like, I could be getting so many people off the road if this thing wasn't happening. Like he feels that this is allowing more, more deaths to happen, more crimes to happen, more things to perpetuate. And, you know, there's, there's so much more happening outside of this illness that, 
that are well that are impacted by it yeah impacted by it exactly well that's an interesting point that you made though like i actually would have thought that relatively speaking crime rates such as that would be down like not necessarily stealing or stuff like that i know that you know people are always going to try to loot stuff when they're not occupied but to be to be driving drunk during all of this of all the things like first of all you're not even supposed to be out <laughs> second of stay all stay at home there's a stay at home order yeah, yeah. and yeah and second of all you know to just again it, it comes back to being careless and that's that's the point too i mean matt's on the front lines he's he still has to pull people over he still has to have these interactions with people and he doesn't know if they're positive testing for covid or not and so like plenty of these people could also be exposing you know our law enforcement as well because you don't know and and you can't keep guard on everybody like that they can't stand within six feet of a criminal and be like hold it right there you know (laughs) like let me lasso you and drag you into the cop car you know it's like that's not gonna happen cowboy style yeah exactly (laughs) that's like brilliant i'm gonna do that now well no i and but i think it's a relevant point because it, it just goes to show that there is just a much farther reach impact to other areas of civil occupations that we aren't considering nearly enough. And I experience it uh, myself with where we live and just like delivery drivers just constantly they're 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 here all the time. And, you know, I can't help but feel like, yes, these people are helping keep our country running. So are grocery store workers and things like that. But we're I just, mean, they're keeping your business running, girl. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and and so, you know, I'm grateful for that. But at the same point in time, I mean, think about how you feel asking yourself, you know, sh- should I be doing this right now? Am I putting, you know, my family at risk because I'm doing this and your job is to save people's lives when um, and, and help them get better? When somebody who's a delivery driver, I have to imagine like, you know, the upside of it, should you be doing it right now? We don't need delivery drivers. We can still go out to the store. But if we don't have delivery drivers and we have to go out to the store, then now there's the store employees. And so there's like no way to fully get away from it. I don't know. I kind of was going off track with that. But there's but there's still the risk. There's still the risk of um, there's people out on the road and there's somebody that's going to multiple houses. It's somebody that's, you know, interacting with boxes and packages that have touched multiple hands on their way to you. Like there's certainly an amount of risk there. And I, I think that there's a lot more jobs like waste management. Like I think about them, like handling everybody's trash cans and and even like medical waste. I mean, gosh, all the people that work in, in the hospital with us, it's not just doctors and nurses. It's, you know, our aides and texts and the people that pull the trash and our infectious disease team. And I mean, there's so many, you could go on and on about all the people that are there. But yeah, the Uber driver, somebody was saying like somebody could pick up somebody that had it. And if a droplet was in there and you were right, I mean, I mean, that's a little analytical, but it's, but it's not on, it's not impossible. And Honestly, that's the scariest thing to me is that it's not impossible. And now it sort of feels like everything's possible. So don't get too comfortable without thinking that you might not get it that way. And, I, you know, I think you like rounded out my point pretty nicely, which was it can happen really to anybody in a multitude of circumstances. And there's virtually no way to protect everyone. 
there unless we were all at home six feet apart from anybody in our house and just waiting for the okay and it's not realistic we still need a lot of these services and if we had like food that was packed like six months ago in like a shelter underneath our home like we would probably be good right you know now is that like we we completely misread the the bunker situation we launched that way too early it was unnecessary when it happened and now we really wish we had stuck with that right like did you ever watch doomsday preppers though no that show it's a little bit of an older show it's kind of like up there with hoarders but these people make bomb shelters and they're like stocked with water and supplies well they interviewed this one guy yeah you laughed at me then but like it was laughing now kind of a situation for sure yeah it was so funny it's like good thing good thing yeah you were like sucks to be you guys you were the only one (laughs) (laughs) we all missed that memo damn it (laughs) i know but that's a good time to be be friends with him it's also a good time to be friends with your crazy chicken lady with all her eggs i got three dozen eggs but no one will touch any of them because they treat me like i'm a parasite i made so many frittatas yesterday (laughs) (laughs) into my um my homemade donut dough. Is that one of your coping mechanisms for Tata? <laughs> <laughs> it is now. <laughs> so one last question for you. If there was one more thing you could share with the audience, some piece of insight or information that we wouldn't otherwise be able to glean unless we were in your shoes, what would that be? What do you think is the most important thing for people who aren't regularly exposed to this crisis to know? I guess I would just communicate that reaching out to people that are healthcare providers, I know that we don't all have like the money or even the um, the loot to like donate. I was never anyone. I was myself somebody who had a ton of Purell or like all those kinds of things to even donate myself. But if you know somebody that's a healthcare provider, like maybe just sending them a pizza or like asking them if they, you can drop off groceries to their house and leave it on their stoop and, you know, run away or whatever. Be a human being. Um, I know that probably all of your listeners are and while, you know, not all of us are doctors and nurses, which, you know, is definitely a good thing. But think of how you can help in a small way, even with your social distancing. And if social distancing is your really your only way of helping, I think that that's awesome, too, because it, it, it's so infuriating when people are not staying home. Um, it just makes me think that I'm going to see one more one more patient on my queue, you know, the next day. So, uh, well, really, five, five to 14 days later, really. Um. <laughs> well, well I, I think that's a really fair point, too, because you had mentioned earlier also, you know, it's not just doctors and nurses, it's other people in the hospital who are working tirelessly to make sure people, patients have what they need or as much as they can get what they need. And so, you know, whether it's a doctor or nurse that you know, or somebody else who might be in any medical facility who's treating people with COVID, I, you know, I agree with you, Lori, like reach out, ask what you can do, find out how you can help. And whether that's donating supplies or money, or if it's just lending your time to have a conversation or sending some groceries, really be cognizant of how much that would mean to somebody who, like you said earlier, you know, doesn't have the bandwidth to offer as much support as maybe any of us would like. But, you know, you you are the people, the glue that is that are holding you know, everything together right now. And so thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you for being really honest about your feelings and how you're, you're dealing with the situation and sharing some of the information that you've had being on the inside, so to speak, because I think it's important that people have an opportunity to understand what it's like and, and how this is progressing. So 
it'll be fun to have you on again when hopefully the pandemic is cleared and we can talk more about you and and your full story. But this has been an awesome conversation and thank you for contributing your expertise and your thoughts to the conversation. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. It was my first podcast. So um, can't wait to listen to more of your stuff. And no, I love you and we'll talk soon. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to Lori Brennan for sharing her story and her time. Visit whothefck.com slash donate to support the COVID-19 response fund and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your other preferred podcast platforms. Until next time. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid.